this is like an all hands on deck situation. We need to be there for each other in this moment. Greetings, salutations, and welcome to The Feminist Prison, the podcast where I want to say we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. Sometimes. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good. I am so happy that I have inculcated you into saying salutations. That feels that feels great. It's a, it's a, a new pretentiousness level unlocked, and I'm happy for it. <laughs> I just feel like we get like more and more Lewis Carroll as time goes on. And like, I'm here for it. Could you just like a sort of tone check on like the life, the world, the fall? Like we're back to school. Well, some of us are back to school. Some of us are writing a book. But like, how's your fall going? It's it's going, you know, we're now resolutely, I think, in, in whatever the new normal is. Uh, and turns out there's a lot of stuff that was unaddressed, uh, left unaddressed during the pandemic. <laughs> Years. It didn't fix itself? <laughs> um, you'd be shocked by how many highly paid people within certain universities seem to think that it has. Yeah, I did notice that no masking guidance went out this year after oh, several years right. of that not. But you're not teaching in the classroom this fall, so this might that's not right. affect you as much. But like the last, I mean, I think at the beginning of every quarter for the past two years, there's been some sort of guidance about like masks are required, true, right? masks are required under these conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I kept waiting for that email to show up and it never did. And I think that itself is a pretty uh, interesting yeah. message. All, all that went out was one tweet that was hashtag YOLO. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess there's that. It's not funny. I know. Yeah. So, I mean, I will say just as we're sort of like temperature checking, like most of the people I'm seeing on campus, at least indoors, are masked. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, at Clayman, we're still doing Yes, uh, or putting things outdoors when we can and stuff like that. So it's really hard to find a balance of living and respecting everybody. And just as you say, uh, everything did not figure itself out by itself in the last two years. What a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also, I, I guess that's the shadow side to everything. To put the sunny side there, too. I also feel really inspired by like the energy on campus. And it's really nice to see public life again, I would say. Like I've noticed an uptick in just general vivacity in on both campus and in the city of San Francisco. And yeah, yeah. That, you know, is complicated and also I think in a collective effervescence kind of way feels good. Like it was hard to go without public life for as long as yeah, we did yeah. and kind of unreasonable to expect life to continue to be worth living without any aspects of it. Yeah, it's true that about three weeks ago, me and uh, 14 undergraduates from Stanford got to have lunch with friend of the pod, Sister Roma, outside oh, in San Francisco. MG. And someone was jackhammering right next to us the entire time we were talking. So I was like, it does feel Perfect. like something's back, you know, Perfect. something is back to normal. And you'll be happy to learn we ate falafel and shawarma. That is fantastic. Fantastic. What did feminist scholar Adrian Daub eat at the falafel shop? I want to see a beti kebab, but I can't quite swear to it. I'm more of a shawarma girl myself. That's more. That's more my, like a chicken shawarma as a default. Well, this was like you know, th these were like these were like lunch platters. So like, oh, I love a lunch platter. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was good. It's good. That's fantastic. My plan is to have a shawarma with every prominent LGBTQ person like in the world. Yes. Hashtag goals. Absolute goals. Hashtag goals, yeah. Yes. Okay, so who are we talking to today? Yeah, so in our ongoing pursuit of the question, what's going on with panics? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> with panics, yes. we're talking to Melissa Jira Grant, who I know mostly from her book, Playing the Whore, the work of sex work. I was going to say, too, I knew her previous to this interview and this research on trans issues. Like I knew her mostly for her excellent writing on the feminist politics of sex work, which is Absolutely. totally worth checking out. Yes. But she's also a staff writer at the New Republic, where I had sort of noticed like yeah, as you had, that she had sort of begun kind of talking about sex panics more broadly and how they were being instrumentalized by the far right. Mm -hmm. And that felt to us like a part of this ongoing investigation that we that kept coming up, right? Jules Gil-Peterson talked about that a little mm -hmm. bit. A future guest of ours uh, will talk about it quite a bit too. But we sort of thought, well, we, we kind of need to delve into it in a little bit more detail, knowing full well, as 
Melissa told us right away that it was going to be depressing as hell. And it was depressing mm -hmm. as hell. I think, you know, we were both kind of beaten down at the mm -hmm. end of this. One of the things that I think Melissa does so beautifully in her work on this is just kind of explain and recontextualize what we already know, mm -hmm. right? And there's a tendency, and that's kind of what the cancel culture panic is also about, right? Like, there are things that like we're expected to put into this context. Like, oh, these students were mean to the speaker. Like it's a sign of a new McCarthyism, whatever, right? And then there are other things that like we sort of never are supposed to put into context, like violence against queer people. Violence against sex workers and how that might connect right, exactly. to some of these issues through the ages of choice and agency. Right. Just an endless series of non-comparable cases. And like, why would you bring these up now? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, and so it felt really important. And I think it is something that Melissa's doing amazing work on. Uh, it was also just like, you know, seeing it laid out like that, you're like, oh man, this is this is bad. Mm -hmm. This is really, really scary stuff. But I thought it was a really important conversation to sort of see why the QAnon vocabulary is so mm -hmm. strong in the in the new version of the anti-trans panic. The thing that Jules said to us a couple of weeks ago, right, where her point was, well, there is this kind of weird symbiosis between the people who are sort of just asking questions from kind of a supposedly liberal mm -hmm. perspective and the people who do this really creepy shit online. Mm -hmm. And Jules's point was like, they're not distinct. You know, they're not identical, but they're not distinct either. And I think mm -hmm. Melissa was able to sort of give us a really good sense as to how exactly they collaborate and sort of amplify one another. Yes. God, I love the way you said that. And if we're drawing these connections, another one that comes back to me is this sort of operative question that we've been deploying all over these interviews, which is who gets to be an expert on their own experience, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and who is afforded the latitude to make choices that convey that they are an expert on their own experience? Yeah. Trans people get enfolded in really complicated ways into this discussion. Trans kids, for F's sake, get folded in really complicated ways into this discussion. Sex workers, etc. I was going to say, I mean, that's the, that's the classic one, right? Where people want to explain to sex workers what they're doing all the time and like... Exactly. ...seem almost overtly hostile right. to sex workers being like, well, here's my own experience with this, right? right. The fact that Melissa found her way to this topic did not shock me in the sense that like no, a lot of the exactly. way in which trans kids are being talked about but not to reminds me of yes. sex work exclusionary feminism in the 90s and early 21st century. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the connection I wanted to elucidate. And I also think the concept of agency and choice get a lot more complicated when we're talking about minors, yeah. you know, and that that enters this discussion in some interesting ways. Like one of the things we talked about was this sort of the rise of this groomer vocabulary, which amounts to, at the end of the day, sort of like right-wing adults arguing with left-wing adults about who's going to take better and safer care of children. Right. None of which is actually consulting the children themselves. Right. So this is all really complicated. And like children can't always make all their decisions for themselves. Like that is also an aspect of this. So yes, choice is still at the center of all of this. Agency is also still at the center of all of this. But like it gets really hairy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shall we uh, skip to... The good part? Yes, totally. I'm so grateful for Melissa's, I would call it a kind of relentlessness. Like she has, she has an unwillingness that almost becomes an inability to look away from these like really disturbing, horrifying trends. Really good way of putting it. But yeah. I'm so, so grateful to her for continuing to interpolate them, sometimes at great personal cost to herself, which we also talk about it in the years. So yeah, that's right. Yes. With gratitude, we go there. Yeah. Gratitude to Melissa and... Gratitude to Valerie Solanas. Uh, yes. She's Melissa's cat, I should mention, <laughs> on top of being many other things. such a uh, good little like bomb to drop. Yes. Uh, yeah. So we, we learned towards the end of the interview, and if you stick around, you can hear more about it. Uh, Valerie Solanas makes an appearance. Um, not the Valerie Solanas, but in the way today. <laughs> I'm just going to keep Solanas. saying it. Yeah. So, so here is us, the feminist present, Adrian Dab and Laura Good, with Melissa Giergrant and... Valerie Solanas. Enjoy. Enjoy.
Thank you so much, Melissa, for joining us on The Feminist Present. We've become fascinated with this way the cancel culture panic turned into an anti-trans panic. And I feel like you've done some really, really good reporting on the very specific kind of ways in which that has evolved. And one place I think we might be able to start is kind of to talk about libs of TikTok a little bit and just use that maybe as our very specific way in, which I think we've made it into like six episodes of this series without that ever coming up. And that feels like an oversight. So would you be able (laughs) to walk us through that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. And and as an acknowledged, like, I don't know, very young Gen Xer, very old millennial, but like TikTok is only exists in my universe as a journalistic enterprise. So this is not to say that what Libs of TikTok is doing is journalism, because it's not. And that's often how they try to defend what they're doing. But just to say that I am not a TikTok expert in any way, shape or form. So please. I mean, Melissa, I'm so old. (laughs) Like I only watch the TikTok videos that other people post to Instagram reels. So like you are accepted in this space. (laughs) Same, but for Twitter. Yeah, it's ridiculous. (laughs) Um, That makes me feel better. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, you know, Libs of TikTok is an account that I think last time I checked had more than 1.3 million followers just on Twitter. The person behind it, who's like a (sighs) tried to be anonymous for a while, but uh, didn't succeed in being anonymous entirely through her own poor upset. Her name is Kaya Rachek. She is also in some ways supported by the founder of a website called the Babylon Bee, which is like a right wing wannabe onion type website, like right wing satire. And they have like run afoul of Twitter here and there on misgendering and deadnaming people, losing their account occasionally. And Libs of TikTok sort of like operates in that same zone of like, we're just so being victimized by people on Twitter when you come after us for our content, you know, when you come after us for just sharing other people's TikTok videos, which was their primary content. You know, we're not exactly harassing these people. We're not dead naming them. We're not misgendering them. We're just showing you this video that they made themselves. And it just so happens that the videos are almost entirely of trans non-binary folks. A lot of them are educators. And they will also go to the effort of trying to find that person's name. Sometimes the school district that they work in. It kind of blew up, I think, when the woman behind it went on Tucker Carlson. And you started to see this, like, interplay between you know, a video that someone on Twitter would tag libs of TikTok in some outrageous, look at this non-binary teacher type video, they would tag libs of TikTok. And then the video and the woman behind libs of TikTok would end up on Tucker Carlson within like a night or two, you know, talking about this as if it's some kind of controversy. That's to me, like the one of the most significant things about libs Mm -hmm. of TikTok is there's like a direct pipeline to Fox and to Tucker Carlson in particular. And Kind of one of the scariest things that there's a lot of scary things Libs of TikTok has been involved in, but most recently, really just mobilizing people in their communities to show up in person and confront people, whether that's at a family friendly drag brunch in Dallas, Texas, this happened earlier this summer. And now with this wave of attacks that we're seeing targeting hospitals that have gender affirming care offered in them. So it's not just like happening on the Internet, right? Like they are able to like drive people from their couches, their homes, their mm-hmm. phones, whatever, and drive to a bar, drive to a hospital, drive to a public library. And then, of course, sometimes those people who do that make their own videos, which then end up online. And then the feedback loop kind of perpetuates itself. It's so bizarre how much of it is about content and grifting, but it's also like borderline terrorism. Mm-hmm. Like, OK, I need to draw a really sloppy triangle here and I need you both to help me with it. Mm -hmm. Adrian, I know you're going to know this and I can't think of the name. Who was the lady who was really mad about the gay teachers in the Harvey Milk era? Oh, back in the 70s? You think of Anita Bryant? That's the one, Anita Bryant. So this is like Anita Bryant remix. Like we have, like, so here's the sloppy isosceles to the triangle. One of our biggest themes on this podcast, two of our biggest themes on this podcast are one, the intersections between the struggle for gay liberation and the struggle for feminist liberation. And two, sort of recycling these discourses to evidence how these are not 
new debates, right? And so when you were just talking, Melissa, about this effort to mobilize against specifically trans and non-binary teachers, I just couldn't stop thinking about Anita fucking Bryant and how we have been having the same fight for 50 years. And I just think that's like a really important note to emphasize because I think there is a temptation in this TikTok era to be like, ooh, new controversy, novelty, look at, and it's not, it's the same tired argument. Okay. Sloppy triangle completed. Thank you for bearing with me. No, it's a good, it's a good comparison. You know, I'm sure if you asked the average person sending videos into libs of TikTok, hey, have you heard of the Briggs Initiative? Like, do you remember gay politics circa 19, was it 77? Yes. Harvey Milk was still alive and um, on the board of supervisors in San Francisco. Yeah, they couldn't move at the speed of internet. If you wanted to wage a war against, at that point, gay and lesbian teachers, you know, not that there weren't others, but that was like the language, you were doing it on TV. You may even be turning people out in the streets to protest people, but it didn't have that same sort of social media fix of like, oh, what if my content ends up on libs of TikTok? You know, what if she replies to me? So there's this way that she's kind of tapped into this like deputizing vigilantism that seems to be very inseparable right now from this kind of anti-queer politics. Inseparable and incredibly dangerous. <laughs> like, so terrifying. Yeah, which has sort of entered the discourse again, I think, through the cancel culture panic, precisely because both the sort of worry about political correctness and the early sort of concern about cancel culture was also always an incitement to discourse. It was saying, write to us with the most ridiculous shit you can find. And there, too, I think there was often a kind of implicit suggestion that, hey, if your story is good enough, maybe Tucker will have you on, basically, right? Like, this was sort of a run-through for what's going on now in a much more targeted way. But it was about, like, you know, people like me. It was about college professors where you kind of felt like, well, whatever, they got to be okay with it. But, of course, like a doctor performing gender-affirming care probably doesn't really love someone storming their hospital to go viral. Yeah, like there's a degree to which none of these people being targeted are like public figures. Right. In any conventional sense. Mm-hmm. They have no expectation that, you know, say in the example of these teachers in the school district that I've been following, that I don't even want to mention because I don't even want it to like become a thing. I'm having that impulse too, yes. Yeah, but you know, what I've learned in that school district is that because there's this motivated group of moms, not entirely, but mostly moms who feed content to libs of TikTok. And they're getting this content through filing many, 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 many freedom of information requests to this school district. And this is happening in multiple school districts across the country. I'm not sure how many. It seems like a tactic that they really like workshopped on CRT and the CRT panic right. and trying to find like evidence, quote unquote, of like these scandalous things that are being taught. And the kinds of things that they're looking for now are like pamphlets from Glisten, right? Like, any materials that talk about gender or sexuality at all. And then that is being cast as suspect beyond just sort of like, look at these excesses. It's like, look at these people coming for your children. Right, the groomers. That is a twist. Yeah, that is a twist in this, I think, that escalated from like the kind of, like it's like taking that cancel culture playbook that sort of got workshopped on like, look at these Oberlin students or whatever. Mm. And now there's a much more violent edge to it. I'll just say it. It's a scary environment yeah. in which mm-hmm. to be an educator or a librarian right now. And I I think that's the point. Of course it is. I mean, we are both queer educators and like, it's very scary. I just want to mention for, for the listener following along at home that we are referencing Melissa's article in the New Republic, Libs of TikTok and the Rights Embrace of Anti-LGBTQ Violence, which was published on September 7th. And also Melissa connects like... I'm going to say beautifully because your writing is so elegant, but like the topicality is so horrible. (laughs) The threads really strongly connect to your June 8th article, A Pizzagate in Every City. And I think you have done an incredibly skillful job drawing these through lines of how what some people call shitposting leads to like real life terrorism and violence. So can I ask you to talk a little bit about how we have gotten yeah. to a Pizzagate in every city. It's so funny when I, it's not funny, it's bleak. You know, when I wrote the, a Pizzagate in every city, like that was still meant to be speculative. Sure. That was like, I think this might be happening. I think that we might be seeing more mobilizations like this. I think they might even feature people who are armed, who are purporting to look for children. And here we are just a couple months later, and it feels like it's already 
rolling. And, and Libs of TikTok has been a key part of that. And also Tucker, The Daily Wire, um, and Matt Walsh, who's like a one-man content factory. Like, I would love to know who's financing his situation because it seems like all that he does, if you just sort of like, like, I just tracked what he did over the course of a week. And he is apparently full-time on this campaign against doctors who provide gender-affirming care and sort of casting himself as an investigative journalist. So we have like that cadre of people, right? Like pseudo-journalists and TV personalities. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have people engaged in groups like the Proud Boys, Patriot Front, and also sort of like unaffiliated guys with guns and GoPros. Like this has just become this like fixture at these confrontations at libraries, at schools, at LGBT events, at pride events over the course of the summer. And so what you have is like political propaganda saying that this group of people are monsters. They're coming for your children. And now you have this escalating far right phenomenon, which like this probably isn't news to anyone listening to this, but like it didn't go anywhere with Trump. If anything, it's accelerated and gotten worse. Those two things coming together, like I challenge myself on this all the time. Like this feels very new to me. Mm. I some people are describing what's going on right now as a backlash. And I push back on that in a couple of ways. But the main one being like, I don't remember anything like this in my lifetime and I'm in my 40s. Right. You know, was it hard coming out as a queer kid in the suburbs in the 90s? Sure. Did I have to contend with libs of TikTok? Thank God, no. I wasn't a topic on the news every single night. Yeah. Like trans kids were on Tucker's show a few weeks ago. You weren't at risk of your house getting swatted, of your address getting doxxed, of like all of those like sort of swarm tactics that can happen online too. Yes, that's a really salient point. I mean, I don't want to like say like, oh, it's new because of technology. I think that's not like you were saying earlier, but there's this like interplay between the way that the far right is organized and the ways that the technology are allowing them to find each other. And then the propaganda Mm -hmm. being handed right to them. Yes. And the kind of respectability that it has really attained, right? Like that's in some way the scariest part. I feel like there's been the paranoid style on, on the American right for a long, long time. But I think this is sort of what I'm starting to really become convinced by as we do this series, that in some way, the various mini panics sort of leading up to this one anchored the kind of just asking questions stuff so deeply in the mainstream and some way there aren't a whole lot of resources to draw on to call out this behavior because in the end right like we've established that apparently transphobia is protected speech and it would be a really bad thing for someone to clamp down on it just because it leads to violence right and so now here we are and basically when the quote-unquote outing of the of the creator of lives of tiktok was reported it was once again framed as like, well, has maybe internet doxing culture gone too far? It's like, gee, you know, glad that's the person that occasions this worry. But like in some way it points to the fact that like maybe it's not that the strategies are new or that the risk is new. We feel just uniquely unprepared to sort of draw lines and say like, well, no, this ma- that's messed up and you can't do it because we've just convinced ourselves that like transphobes are the real victims here, right, for a long, <laughs> long time. And now we sit here and we no longer have a vocabulary to be like, please don't chase away our librarian. We like her. Yeah. Like I keep thinking like, when would have been the moment to cut this off? Right. Like, was it back in the earlier cancel culture panic right. where liberals and feminists were sort of excusing the like just asking questions stuff about trans kids that has now become so thoroughly mainstream it's almost like impossible to push back it's not impossible to push back but like it's becoming a full-time job to push back such that you can't actually put out anything affirmative right it's pushed people into this defensive crouch and then that sort of feeds this idea that this is a debate and there are two sides like whenever I see like something like oh you know Ron DeSantis's feud with Disney it's like Disney didn't start that, right? Disney had nothing to do with that. Like, I think journalism has a lot to be responsible for when it comes to this. There's a way that these things keep getting framed as debates between people trading different kinds of speech without an awareness that we're actually talking about violence. We're talking about people's access to healthcare and education. Mm -hmm. Like, a win for libs of TikTok, like, it doesn't even really matter like how personally gratified she might be by closing down a hospital, because at the end of the day, I think what that means for her is just more content, right? Whether she wins or loses, whether she's canceled or not, as long as it feeds the, Caitlin Burns calls it the cancel culture grift economy. 
Like as long as she can continue to sort of feed the content maw, she comes out ahead. And to your point, like, yeah, like I think we are uniquely unprepared to deal with a political threat that looks like that. It makes people feel like, well, I should just ignore it, which we also know does not work. Right. I'm glad you brought the grift part of this. One of the great things about a grift, right, is that if it doesn't work, it's actually better for the grift, right? Oh, this last miracle cure didn't cure you. Well, I have a new one for you, right? Like in some way, it's better for the grifter, yeah, to basically be like, hey, are you still mad about this thing? But of course, we're we are in the year where what was, I think, for a lot of people engaging in it, a grift, namely the anti-abortion politics in the U.S., sort of accidentally almost sort of delivered the thing that it, on some level, probably, at least for some of the protagonists, never meant to deliver. And I think maybe that's what's going on here, too, that they think, well, this is happening anyway. In some way, the, the libs of TikTok account is the most liberal thing ever in the sense that it thinks, this is happening anyway. I'm just spitting into the wind here. All I'm going to do is going to make some money off of it and get some clout, not realizing that, of course, these things can be rolled back and have been historically. And, you know, and I'm just kind of like putting this idea out there, but like the griftiness and the temporality of it, the way that like the cancel culture panic was kind of about people being mean on the internet. It's like, you're not going to get to a world without people being mean on the internet, right? Like, you're not going to get to a world until we're like fully into the third season of Handmaid's Tale, in which kids don't say, look, I don't think the gender in which I was brought up is the gender that I think I am, in which well-meaning adults will try to account for that fact somehow. So in some way, I think the endlessness of this effort seems to be part of it, right? They know that they're, they'll always have content. Like, they could almost unwittingly win in the way that anti-abortion folks did. Right. I mean, I do think that yeah. on abortion, there were probably more people who were 100% true believers thought they were here to rescue babies. But there were a lot of people whose grift really changed once Dobbs came down and had to scramble and find a, a new way to go. Yeah, And I, I do think in some ways that there's connections between that fight and this one. Like, I don't think it's an accident that we see this uptick after Dobbs, that we see this summer people who maybe like would have been screaming at people outside a clinic. Right. Are now screaming at people outside a hospital. Mm -hmm. True. Of course, especially because the number of people in the United States who will like get in their car and drive somewhere to yell. I mean, there are too many of them, but there's definitely a finite number. That's not a hobby you just pick up cuz right like right. right so suddenly you had all these people with none with with tons of time on their hands there's another summertime dynamic too which over the last i don't know going back how far maybe 5 years or so it's just been like a thing for the far right to show up in usually portland but sometimes other cities on the west coast and just start shit and know that the local anti-fascist community was organized enough yeah. to come out and get in their face. And like to the point now where like those guys didn't even bother showing up in Portland this year. Like to your point about like gas money, like I don't think they had a change of heart. I think they were just like, this is really inconvenient. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to like go and like spend money to get my ass kicked and look foolish on the internet. Look, I'm still paying off the credit card bill from January right. 6th. How the fuck are we supposed That's to right. get to Portland? Like, you know? <laughs> never underestimate like the, the victory that could be won and inconvenience. It really seems to have made a difference. Yeah. But that said, like, so we have people who maybe normally would have been going out in the streets starting shit with, you know, anarchists or just left protesters generally, people who are menacing Black Lives Matter protests. Like there is a crossover between people who would get out of their house to go do that. And now people who are thinking to themselves, like, well, this is just like real life trolling. This isn't serious. Like, I'm just like shit posting in real life. You know, like, I think there are people who really think of it like that. And it's been turned into kind of the way that people talked about QAnon in the earlier days of like, it seems like a participatory exercise. It seems like a quest, mm -hmm. you know, like yeah. go to your drag bar and try to sneak your way in. And if you record a video, all of your friends will like share that and then maybe you'll become like internet famous for half a day it's low stakes for them but it's like incredibly high stakes for everybody else yeah yes yeah. exactly you were saying a couple minutes ago melissa that you're like hesitant to cite specific examples because you don't want to like put people on blast and put them at risk and i'm having that exact same impulse but like 
let me just say circumspectly that like I now know people who have like gone to do a reading at a library and been subjected to like bomb threats and security trainings and like that's that's where we are now <laughs> like and that's terrifying and bleak yeah I remember talking a couple of months ago with a friend of mine who has a book on that list of like 750 banned books and that one school district in Texas and you know, it's not great. No. Like a lot of those folks are also parents. They have kids yes. in schools also. Yes. That's like a factor that they're thinking about. Absolutely. A cool book for queer and trans kids does not end up in a library by accident. There are librarians who advocated for that. What's going to happen to them? Are they going to continue to do that? Like, I don't think we've begun to get into the trickle down effects of this. I mean, which are the real effects and, and what you're saying about going through these trainings now, like what if this happens in your library? just reminds me of all of the like active shooter stuff of course yeah. we're all in that generation they were able to change our change things so quickly this really didn't feel like this before the summer totally yeah. i'm also thinking about how much librarians preceding all of this how much public service librarians are already tasked with you know that's one of the only democratically available sort of public spaces with a bathroom where you can go if you're unhoused and like librarians have already been trained in like administering narcan and things like that like librarians are carrying too much man we got to help them out <laughs> like, this well is i think a, i think a paranoid reading of that is that's why they were targeted right mm. that in many of these smaller constituencies the library is sort of the what remains of the public space of the public of sphere right and like and does all these things that like ultimately you know i'm guessing the, the far right doesn't have a whole lot of interest in people carrying on it's again it's independent and verifiable sources of information it's a place for the kids of poor people to hang out it's a place for the unhoused to hang out it's the place where you know, parents don't get to tell their kids what to do, read and say. It's usually in some way government run. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's not an accidental. Of course. Yeah. Accidental target. And I'm guessing the, the hospitals is probably also just some of these people are COVID protesters who like just had that pre-programmed in their in their GPS. And we're like, ah, fuck it. I'm going back to to, to, the, to the medical center. <laughs> I think the trajectory on the COVID sort of deniers to this runs through public schools yeah. too, right? So like these were the people who two summers ago were showing up at like school district meetings, which were now all of a sudden like being live streamed for the first time sometimes in places. Right. So the audience for those are a lot bigger. People are like watching at home. There's a lot of incentive to get up at the podium and just say some stuff that sounds unhinged and like, who knows, maybe you'll show up on Tucker. And that was like literally happening. There were like parents groups who were like teaching each other how to do well on camera at one of these meetings to yeah. get your little like two minute thing to the school board ostensibly about your child's education to go viral. That that was the whole point. So they used that space as a platform. First it was COVID, then the anti-CRT stuff came in. And then this grooming anti-trans stuff sort of became like the third manifestation of that and I feel like it, they were very, very clear that this was about dismantling public education. Yeah. Like that seems like 100 percent the plan there. You know, there's parents who are engaged in this stuff in school districts where far right think tanks and also mainstream conservative think tanks are like getting involved or like far right actors, like militia groups who will like show up outside and then sort of like mainstream right wing think tanks will like also be like providing some level of coordination. One of the groups that you also often see behind this stuff is Turning Point USA, mm -hmm. Charlie Kirk's group, right. who have very close ties to, to far right groups and may or may not be fair to think of them as one themselves. So the hospital stuff feels a little different than that because I don't, I don't know that their anti-COVID stuff necessarily took them to hospitals, but there is, and again, like I don't want to blow this up, but like there are people who have been building directories of doctors who provide gender affirming care, mm. including clinics, including ones who are based at hospitals. And you saw libs of TikTok like name individual doctors on her account. That reminds me much more of like an operation rescue. Mm. Oh, yeah. Strategy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Can you elaborate on that for people who might not know what that is? I think that's a really deft connection. Sure. So Operation Rescue, I think their heyday was what, like late 80s into the 90s. And this was an arm of the anti-abortion movement that was responsible for things like the murder of George Tiller. Right. 
in 2000, right. in nine or 2010 for providing abortions. It was the second time that he was shot as an abortion provider. They would try to make doctors famous. Mm -hmm. You know, they would put together little dossiers and distribute them in communities. They were a national network who were sharing information with one another. And there was, I think, a web component of, uh, as well. I mean, the far right was actually pretty early in yeah. getting web forums together. So I don't know as much about the online side of what they were doing, but they certainly had these like established, you know, anti-abortion networks to move information through. And it allowed the sort of like respectable anti-abortion movement to like maintain some distance from them. But clearly they're in common cause. And I think the thing that they did that sort of maybe undid them was around George Tiller. You know, the fact that like Fox was also like blasting out his name and his face based, I think, on some of the stuff that had been put out there by Operation Rescue. That may be outside the lifetimes of some of the people who are showing up yeah. at clinics mm -hmm, right now mm -hmm. to scream at people. But it's in the DNA. It's there. You know, it's another kind of vigilanteism that, you know, now needs like a new target. I think that is such a smart, important connection, Melissa. And like, obviously, we've already been talking about the connections between the anti-abortion movement and the anti-trans movement. And like, you know, all these people who just just get real allergic to anybody having physical autonomy. But I just think it's an interesting point to note that George Tiller was was assassinated in 2009. And he was from where? Kansas, where we have just seen like a really historic and exciting pro-choice mobilization, you know, to keep that state from like having abortion completely disappear. So I just think as we're talking in these cyclical ways, I think it's so interesting that like again and again, we keep returning to the same battlegrounds to fight the same fights ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> I think part of the, the reason for that is this disconnect in both the kind of national reproductive rights movements mm -hmm. and now in the national LGBTQ rights movement. Yes, yes. Kansas, anybody who was working in abortion knew that Kansas was rare and that there were physicians there who were willing to provide later term procedures. There were only so many doctors flying around the country providing procedures. Like abortion is a state-based story mm -hmm. that I feel like all of the sort of storytelling around Roe sort of makes it seem like, oh, the venue for this fight is primarily at the Supreme Court. And it's just not true, right? Right. But we weren't seeing as many resources going to those state-based fights. And the same exact thing is happening right now. Exactly. Where a lot of energy went into marriage equality, went into, you know, big sort of federal legislation pushes around things like the Equality Act. Meanwhile, we have state legislators in Texas introducing more than 50 anti-trans bills in one legislative right. season. Mm -hmm. The right is able to really take advantage of that disinvestment yes. on the part of sort of the national movement and the, and the ways that like communities themselves end up feeling very abandoned. At the same time, it does seem to me also there is a structural kind of asymmetry going on there that arguing with these kind of grassroots kind of things that spring up often feels like it's barely even political. And I do think that like there is a type of politics that just kind of doesn't want to do it. And I mean, every time something new comes down, you know, QAnon Parkway, I'm basically like, oh, now I got to learn about this dumb fucking thing. Right. Like it's mm -hmm. it's exhausting Whereas like arguing with a judge at least feels like, you know, there's something a little bit high minded about it. I mean, not, I guess, so much with this Supreme Court, but back in the day or whatever. And then on the other hand, there's also just like the kind of disinvestment that just seems to come from, well, it's very, very far away. And this is something where I think the cancel culture panic sort of very clearly set the stage, too, because... One of the really, so I, I'm working on a book now on how the idea of cancel culture sort of traveled the globe, how it ended up with you know, Vladimir Putin, how it ended up in France and Germany and England, et cetera, et cetera. And I just keep being mystified by the fact that like people can look at the activities of a sophomore at, you know, Sarah Lawrence and be like, this, this matters to me and this matters to my weekend. But what you've pointed to is that a lot of these panics figure out exactly how to do that. 
so cancel culture did this is like you know what some leftist kid thinks on a college campus matters to you and you and jesse waters will tell you all about it right the same with the sort of save the children stuff through QAnon, right like it, it sort of made these extremely labored kind of conspiracy theories like everyone's business i guess what i'm saying is that there is a way in which these conspiracy theories kind of create a buy-in that no rational appraisal of any political situation would ever be able to yield. That's, there's something of a, of a fundamental asymmetry there that really, really scares me. Just to give one example for our listener, there was a, a screenshot from the Jesse Waters show that sort of made the round a couple of weeks ago from a Southern California school board meeting of the type that you mentioned with the Chiron uncle of two colon Stop pushing trans issues on our kids. And I'm like, it's awesome if like the uncle of two, like he doesn't even have children in the school district. Now, I don't want to be too patrilinear, but I feel like, you know. What's I, his skin gonna... in the game, guys? Exactly, you know? right? But, like, but, like, but the way that like the right has been able to convince people that they have skin in games that like they barely even bother to understand is kind of remarkable to me. And I don't see how one how one could activate something analogous on the left without just flat out lying to people so many things i want to say i'm going to try to hit the three that came to me as you were talking and hopefully i'll be able to like get back to each of them so the first is this asymmetry right the like the local national that like the far right or even you know the right right can like pluck a little story like that out of a town and it gets national news coverage during the anti-trans bill push in 2021 and also going into this year, you would hear about that. You are far more likely to hear about that on Fox than on MSNBC. And Media Matters was kind of literally counting up like minute by minute, mention by mention, like who was talking about this. Right. And then when I was in Texas at that time in 2021, when all of those bills were before their state legislature, like what I kept hearing from folks, you know, adults who were trans, adults who were non-trans and had trans kids alike, like if only our friends paid as much attention to us as our enemies, you know, like they will say like, oh, they're just using you guys as a political football. It's just like a political fight. And it's like, right, we'll get in the fight then. Right. You know, like this sort of like we go high. We're better than this. Mm -hmm. We don't have to respond to these smears. That doesn't work in the face of this. And it's also the strange thing where it's like the you know, Republican Party and the right generally has like managed to create this fantasy version of trans acceptance, this like democratic, you know, just acceptance and tolerance and excitement right. even around trans lives that has like nothing to do with reality. Like it reminds me of like the Glenn Beck chalkboards in like 2010, where he would like imagine like a left that was like all powerful. Right. And it's like, oh, gosh, if only, you know, this world where they think that like trans kids are getting absolutely everything that they want. In fact, perhaps too much. If only. Right. Right. That's that's not the reality. So that's like one, maybe two things. And yeah, the other thing is just like where politics happens. Right. Like the idea that like a court fight is has rules. It's more dignified. There's sort of, you know, I've gone to Supreme Court cases like it's fun. It feels like you're part of history or whatever. But I certainly do much better reporting in like misdemeanor court when there's like no other reporters there. And I'm just watching like prostitution and loitering cases go by one after another where we have our eyes as the media is like completely tilted yeah. away from the local. And then when it comes to sort of like the architecture of like the rights organizations, whether you're talking about like. Planned Parenthood or HRC or whoever. I don't think this is like particular to any one organization. At the end of the day, it seems like a lot of their strategies are built around put the smartest lawyers on it. Put the smartest lawyers, bring the right case, we'll defend our rights, we'll make the right argument. These are not groups that are able to respond to these kinds of threats. Yeah. Yeah. And then I I'm what I've been doing a lot of in the last just week or so is trying to figure out like, well, who is doing this? Mm. You know, who are the people? in these communities who are being targeted, who is able to come out and sort of defend their community against the far right and how absolutely disconnected their activity is from sort of the like public facing mainstream, you know, LGBTQ rights movement. Right. And it's not like, you know, the Antifa activists in like Connecticut are like, please, HRC, write us a check and help us. Right. right? Their strategies are very different. Their modes are very different. But I think that their lives have been made more difficult and the community's lives are being made more at risk when we have this like asymmetrical way of doing rights-based work. Right. 
around gender and sexuality. Like when the arena isn't like your school or your library and you're waiting for like, I guess your school to generate the right civil rights case that maybe someday we'll make it up to the right circuit court. Oh, by the way, though, our courts are completely fucked. Right. I was thinking <laughs> about no, that. Yes. Like that's the one thing I'm hoping is like what happened with Dobbs and, and seeing the makeup of the Supreme Court in the United States right now and seeing the way that the judiciary is completely captured by the right, if not the far right, perhaps will result in a recalibration of strategy. If I'm hopeful about anything, it is that because I am hearing from people who, you know, did put a lot of faith and put the smart lawyers on it, who are realizing like, oh, God, the smart lawyers don't even want to do this anymore. They're not even sure that it this is the winning strategy. I've been reading about the, the reckoning at law schools, for instance, right? I mean, the fact that like this was for a long time the prime avenue through which really broad based change could be affected and really dangerous things could be beaten back. And it's just not clear that the courts are that at all anymore. And then the question is, basically, we'd have to go back really to the late 70s to sort of find a, a precedent for how defense functions, how people then rise up. Yeah, like the work, like what movement work even means, I think is going to have to change. Yeah. So there was over the summer, there was a, a pride event in Helena, Montana, where lots of people came out because this one bookstore that was hosting the event just requested it which doesn't always happen. Like when one of these events knows that they're being targeted by the far right, I think sometimes they don't know what to do. They don't want to like make it worse by drawing attention to it. But when they do put out the call for help, people are responding kind of wherever, you know, like I think that they were pretty surprised at the number of people who came out to defend them and also like who they were, that this was just like anybody in the community who wanted to defend this bookstore. It wasn't just sort of like a queer issue or a trans issue. It was seen as like, these people are coming to our community to hurt us. And it it just felt like, I don't know where that sort of lives alongside like mainstream LGBT rights groups. And in a way, I worry that we're losing in the legislative fights that those kinds of groups are pushing. And some of the wins are actually happening at the level of community defense right now, which isn't to be optimistic. Like, I think this is, we can't scale up that level of community defense and protect people at the speed at which these threats are moving, but just to sort of like have some recognition of like how outmatched people are, where the money and the staff is versus where the threats are and the defenses. Yeah. I've thought about this, you know, the fact that like, you know, you don't want to give these people more attention, right? This is very frequently, right? It's too dumb. It's too crazy sounding to really dignify and you're only giving it more airtime. But I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that like, this might also be where this new wave of protests kind of draws on, let's say, the other side's defense against Me Too, which is to say this idea that like, oh, well, maybe you were asking for the attention, right? This this like completely, frankly, nuts idea that like someone would want that sort of attention, right? But of course, that is what you'd likely hear if you said, you know, our little bookstores under attack please come out. It's like, oh, well, aren't you just promoting your little bookstore there? You know, and I I do think this idea that victims of very real structural and social violence might be chasing clout is one that comes up very, very often. And it comes up for a very obvious reason, namely that a lot of people on the right making these accusations are themselves chasing clout. It's like, it feels like perfect projection. It's like, yeah, well, you are doing that. I doubt that this kid whose seventh grade just turned dog shit is the one looking for tons of Twitter followers here. I'm sure they would have preferred the five followers they had and a uneventful seventh grade, you know? It's sort of like the like, lol, we're just joking. We weren't really being Nazis thing, but the right has built into that sort of strain of organized harassment that results in things like doxing like what you'll see on like libs of tiktok is like i didn't do anything you're the one who made the video right i'm just sharing it right and and the victim blaming is like the content strategy Mm -hmm. like she doesn't have to make anything yes like she didn't produce these videos but obviously the way that she's framing what she's saying about them the people she tags in them like you can't you can't say that you didn't do anything then to sort of deflect and say like, oh, well, the person who made the video is somehow at fault. Right. I do think it's kind of easy for people to like stop and think and say, well, wait a minute, like maybe I'll just make this worse if I get involved. Right. You know, do I want to share this horrible thing that Libs of TikTok is saying with like my community? Do I want to put this on my feed and say, hey, guys, this is horrible. Like we should do something about this. I think that that stuff is still kind of getting hashed out. But like my inclination is that at this point, what is safe to bring to the public should be brought 
to the public at this point because I don't see these formations, you know, Libs of TikTok, Proud Boys, Tucker, that whole universe, Jesse Waters, Matt Walsh, this whole architecture is not stopping anytime soon. Right. And I think that like we might come to some better strategy, but right now people I think just need to hear like, I'm not the only one dealing with this. This is how our community dealt with us. I think that like keeping people in isolation has also like really benefited their harassment. Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking, this is a little bit of a pivot, but Melissa, you've been writing about these topic areas. And I mean, you've been writing for the New Republic since 2019. You've been writing on these trans issues for the last several months. And I'm just curious, anecdotally, like, has your inbox gotten worse? Is your online life getting worse? Like, have you noticed a change? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I wish I were surprised. (laughs) As I adjust in my chair. Yeah. I mean... I think the worst of it has been the groomer stuff, which just to sort of run through for folks, calling people a groomer Mm -hmm. is not new Um, on the right. It's not new as sort of an anti-LGBT smear, but it took off this year, I think largely because of the Florida law that's been shorthanded, don't say gay, and, and the actions of Ron DeSantis's press secretary, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, where this bill was his baby, his press secretary was out there engaging with libs of TikTok and talking about groomers. Oh, I didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, if you oppose this bill, you're a groomer. And I think that was like the stamp of approval on this entire discourse. And any time over the summer, like particularly with that Pizzagate story of Pizzagate in any city, If one of the people sort of in those networks picked up a story, it would just like completely Mm -hmm. destroy Mm -hmm. my Twitter for a day. Just like grooming, 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 just constant, constant, constant. I mean, I have my settings set that I'm not really going to see this stuff, but sometimes I will go look and sort of see how things are being passed around and be like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why this right wing YouTuber shared this. And then it's like immediately Mm -hmm. like this is networked harassment, like the number of accounts that are like getting stuff to the widest audience, like there aren't actually that many of them, but they have a lot of people who will then hop on the bandwagon that they point them at. Go tell this person they're a groomer right now. Okay. Now go tell Taylor Lorenz at Washington Post that she's a groomer. Okay. Now go to Ben Collins at NBC that he's a groomer. Like any of the reporters who've covered this stuff are used to getting a swarm of these people when they publish. And I feel pretty numb to it by now. To be honest, you know, I've been online for a long time. I was like first online as a teenager in the 90s and have dealt with all kinds of weird harassment over the years. But this is like very fast moving and like pretty clear that it's coming from some level of coordination, you know, sometimes happening right out in public. But I'm sure that there's other kinds of coordination happening behind the scenes on mailing lists and signal and telegram chats and things like that, where they just sort of say, here's the Here's like our our target for the next five minutes. Okay, everybody go hit them. Now we're going to hit another one in, you know, a half an hour. Yeah, it's predictable. That's like the one good thing about it. But it sucks. We might point out that the grooming idea was, when we mentioned the Briggs Initiative earlier, the groomer meme was kind of already there in 1978, right? The idea, oh, they can't have, like, what, why were gay teachers targeted? Well, because LGBT teachers couldn't themselves reproduce. I'm not sure... I guess suggests that they don't know much about sex either, but like, um, you know, therefore they must turn other, they must turn our children gay. Right. And that's where the grooming panic, like it's drawing from that. It's literally, I mean, I guess when ABBA reunited, it just became a license to, uh, to just kind of bring back the late seventies, you know? Right. I I remember hearing it in the 90s to the extent that like when we were doing our very baby gay organizing in my high school, that was like a joke that I feel like we had to refer to all the time. Like, you know, teachers sort of being like, oh, but I don't want to like encourage anybody. We're like, look, if any of your students are gay, they're not looking to you for encouragement. Like, I understand this idea has been planted in your head and we would try to make a joke about it. um, But obviously you know, the adults in our lives, like, didn't find it as funny as we were trying to sort of deflect to try to get their support. No. Um, Meanwhile, for uh, you know. a college, I remember there was always chalkings that, like, got conservative students very upset. 
the like three conservative students we had. Ten percent is not enough. Recruit, recruit, recruit. And oh, I love it. Yeah, that would, we we would like chant that in the hallways, yeah. and our teachers would be like, S -s 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 yeah. "Stop!" Because we were trying to. I don't know. We were slackers. This is a very Gen X sort of baby gay activism. I love it. But to see it, yeah, to see it now, it feels like it's spread a little bit to straight non-trans educators if they are at all affirming of their students yeah then like they're a groomer too so it's not even like you directly are recruiting like more people like you it's more like if you are at all accepting if you even like use the name that someone wants to be called use their pronouns that they tell you they're using that that constitutes grooming and there's been ugh, it that that feels like a, a slight sort of expansion this is something that took me forever to sort of understand about sort of right-wing, or I should say Christian conservative anti-LGBT organizing, right? This idea that like, if we give people the idea that they can, they're gonna. It's like, well, yeah, if they are, right? Like, I mean, you're not gonna like, being accepting towards, you know, gay students is one thing, but like, it's not gonna make your straight students run away and like, hook up with each other, right? But in their mind, it always kind of did that because because it's ultimately about Satan's temptation, I guess. It's like, we're all extremely susceptible to it. And then this is just reframing that for, for gender. It's like, oh, gender is such a fragile thing, even though it's also totally natural. And like, if you put any doubt in their minds at all, like they're going to end up, you know, thinking there's some other gender. And so it, 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 I agree with you that it's new. Yeah. It also has this like, they're playing all the hits still. <laughs> they are like, and then they'll like layer things on. So like now they'll be parents of trans kids will bring lawsuits if they think that the school affirmed the child when they did not. Oh. And will characterize this as a violation of their parental rights. <laughs> My child turned different from me. Yeah, wow. I hesitate to like name where this is happening, but like I have a tracker on um, Pacer following a couple of these lawsuits as they wind their way through the courts. And what it looks like from the filings is this is a trans kid who hadn't yet come out to their parents, who had come out to their parents and were rejected. We're sort of tiptoeing at school into like trying to see if there was safe space there for them, found like a teacher who is at all affirming. And then that teacher's behavior is made suspect. <sighs> and like the, yeah, the, the kind of like the parental rights stuff does feel right out of Briggs. But I feel like there's now there's like an architecture for like, I don't know, angry parents of trans kids yeah. to find each other and organize and do these kinds of lawsuits together. And track their children's behavior online, reaffirm each other's disgust at their children. I mean, it's like anti-glisten, basically. Ugh. Those networks are part of this whole kind of landscape, too, when it comes to, like, organizing people to come out to school board meetings and things like that. Ugh. Okay, so I'm going to pivot a little bit again as we wind down. So, like, please do, Melissa, like, I feel nauseous just hearing us talk about this, you know, like, and like, I engage regularly with the subjects. This, these aren't the first times I'm learning or hearing about any of this. But like, I guess I just want to ask, like, also, because we are people who teach, you know, and people who teach writers to become writers, like, how do you take care of yourself as you do this? You know, like, I'm sure that your Twitter settings are on point in the filters and like, make sure you don't see as much as the bullshit as possible. But like, would you be willing to talk a little bit about just like your personal self-care practices and how you like, you know, just make it through the day? <laughs> yeah, because it's it's changed. Well, what I cover has changed a lot. And I feel like I have a certain infrastructure for self-care or methods of self-care that I already had in place mm -hmm. that I don't know if a lot of other people who cover the far right necessarily have in place. I'm very interested in that. Yeah, like reporters who are more on the beat of sexual violence or gender-based violence or oppression, which was like more or less my entire beat and still is, I think. But now with this sort of different set mm -hmm. of aggressors, there's a lot of mutual support there and an awareness that like we don't want to do harm to the people that we're interviewing. And part of the way to do that and maintain healthy boundaries is to take care of yourself. Yes. You know, don't lean on your subjects to care for you yes. and also have a space to go like get that support yourself. Like whether that's working with therapists, which I highly recommend, you know, in our age of insurance, it, I know it's not easy for people, but it makes a huge difference just to have somebody to kind of download what's mm -hmm. going on. That's not your partner mm -hmm. or your friends or even other journalists sometimes. I mean, and you can build that support network, I think, with other journalists who are doing that work too. I think that's really important. I certainly have group chats that I've been in for years where we just like kind of float the stuff by each other. And then, yeah, pivoting to sort of covering the far right more, which I came to through covering 
kind of the panic around sex trafficking. Right. Which, you know, without that, I don't think QAnon would have had the foothold that it did. And it's a drama I keep coming back to. If we hadn't had literally 20 years of local media stories publishing anything a cop said about human trafficking, those people would not have been able to stage those rallies two summers ago and get that kind of media pickup. So that was like a turning point, realizing that like I was bringing a different set of tools to both covering this stuff and also caring for myself that a lot of the people who cover extremism aren't necessarily bringing like a gender lens and aren't necessarily like coming out of like, there are so many reporters right now covering the anti-trans violence who are like, this is just like nothing they've ever covered before topically, yes, but are doing incredibly good work because they're coming at it through understanding how these far right formations spread their propaganda and the interplay that they have with the GOP, with mainstream news in a way. I'm like, maybe that's as much of an important part of this, if not the more important part. Like I would like more people who are versed in sort of the politics of gender and sexuality mm-hmm. to be supporting those folks, especially when it comes to things like self-care, mm-hmm. because it's way easy to burn out on this stuff. And very few people are in a position. Like, I don't think I could do this if I had, if I was still a freelancer, there's a way being in the staff of a magazine and and sort of having a certain infrastructure there, an editor that I trust I can yes. go back to over and over again. It makes a huge difference. And, and honestly, just putting some of that into the stories, like not being like, I'm going to write a paragraph about how outraged and mad and how much I want to scream I feel and how nauseous I am right now. And like, I'm at a loss for words about how horrible this is to look at every single day yeah. and to hear from friends who are living through this um, in other places in the country. Like I just did a story last week that was like, I want to convey the sense of overwhelm that I feel. So I'm just going to run through a list of every incident that just crossed my path. And I know it's not comprehensive. And I know this week isn't especially bad. It's just the one that I decided to pay attention to because I just didn't know what else to do this week. Yeah. Except lay this out, you know, both for the historic record and also like, I feel like some of my readers must be in that place too are just so overwhelmed. And also like you're a human being, you're not just like an information ATM. So it seems very appropriate to me to follow a lot of political commentary with like, let's take a minute to process and see the big picture. (laughs) Like that's very relevant. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's helpful to hear about. And I wish it weren't so hard, you know, and it it, sometimes it feels so trifling to be like, what are your self-care practices as the earth burns and white supremacy (laughs) reigns? No, it's pretty it's pretty grim. But I appreciate, you know, getting the chance to talk about it, because I think like this is like an all hands on deck situation. Yes, dude. Yes, And we we need to be there for each other in this moment and figuring this stuff out. Like there's no perfection here. Like a lot of these groups and forms of propaganda are like crisscrossing each other. Like people in one place are going to notice one thing. People on another beat are going to notice another thing. I really feel very grounded actually from paying attention to journalists who are much more versed in covering the far right. Mm -hmm. Like I feel very in a sick, sad way affirmed by some of the things that they see because it's like, okay, this has actually been going on for a lot longer. Right. It's just that these groups have now seized on a new internal enemy. And that's the thing that truly scares me is that they're, there is a larger political project here that isn't going in a way anytime soon. So the more that we can find out how to care for ourselves as we move through it is essential. I really like the way you mentioned the historical record, you know, just to create a kind of record. And it's so important also to create a record for ourselves because these things sort of move so quickly. On the one hand, I guess, sort of following up on Laura's question about self-care, sort of what do you take yourself to be doing when you create that historical record? I mean, I guess on some level, it's just your job. But um, there is this kind of question, right? Like, do we think in a few years we can point this out to people and say, please don't do this again. Look what happened last time. Look what you allowed to happen. And sometimes there are moments, like especially with the Trump years, where I feel like Americans sort of developed a historical consciousness in the way that they kind of hadn't. And and people are sort of remembering certain things in ways that like with the Bush administration just got yada yada like away almost immediately. But on the other hand, then you brought up the fact that like we've been laying the groundwork for these panics and for QAnon with the sex trafficking stuff for 20 years. And the thing is, I still have students sort of parroting the tropes of that or like wanting to like intern with like groups that where I'm like, this description sounds way off to me or or like, you know, with the sheriff's department that like is going to like rescue women who've been. And then, and you're like, 
oh God, oh God, oh God, I have a, I have a couple of books that I need you to read real fast before you take this on. So that gives me no hope, right? Because like in some way, people have gotten away with this for a long, long time. And I think that this connection that you're making, which is extremely salient, is one that I think most people sort of wouldn't make. And so, yeah, where do you see the job there? Do you think, is, is it really more that like eventually it will be obvious and we just kind of point to it and say, you know, don't make me point to the sign. Like this was a bad idea last time. Or are we in a in a situation where it's going to remain difficult to sort of make these connections salient and make people realize that, they signed on to something that maybe seen by the cold hard light of day, they would not have actually signed on to. My cat has shown up now, by the way. I don't know if I should say that. The interest of continuity, if people start hearing meowing, there's a cat over here. Her name is Valerie Solanus. And she is 11. Oh That's wonderful. Well, she gets, she gets to do, Valerie gets to do whatever That's she right. wants. We let her. Um, it already has. Wide, wide we murder. let her get away with murder. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, that's so. Oh, God. Yeah. Speaking of people who are raised from history, um, I'm a fake historian. I mean, I'm one of those people I think who has respect for the discipline of history, not in a sort of like I worship the academy way. I mean, I'm a college dropout. I'm studying comparative literature, but more just to like that's not my lane. And I hang out with you guys sometimes. And like, I appreciate what you're doing. But like, even when I was in academia, what I was doing was really different. And I'm also an archives nerd. I mean, like, I don't know that many journalists who will, like, go into the archives for their reporting. And I, I very rarely get to do it unless I'm doing, like, a feature story. But the way that I chose to cover the Supreme Court case around trans and gay employment rights was to, like, go to the archives at Radcliffe, the Schlesinger Library, and, like, look up letters that Polly Murray, a legal scholar and activist in the 50s and 60s, was exchanging with Ruth Bader Ginsburg about understanding the intersectionality of gender and race and the law. Like, I consider that like living material to me that's not all that different from the conversations I might have with Chase Strigno, with the ACLU in a chat. And I behave like an archivist in my own work. Like, even the stories that I'm doing that are just like, this is what happened this week, or here's like 1,200 words, I have started to just sort of for my own sanity. Some of this, I think, is like a post-COVID brain fog thing. And some of it is just like, there's so much going on. I create ongoing research documents for every single story. Here's every story that I read. Here's the stories I didn't have time to read. Like, there's a backlog to all of these that I know someday are going to go somewhere for someone to read after I'm not here. Or maybe I'll hand them to another reporter tomorrow. Like, I don't know. But I I have sort of that blended historical consciousness with what I'm doing, like for people in 100 years and like people tomorrow we are making history right now. I don't think we're really going to understand what's going on for another hundred years. And no, like this, I think the sex trafficking thing is the perfect example. That was a case where I felt like I was really screaming in the wilderness for 15 years because I started doing journalism in 2005. And a lot of it was around that. And it didn't seem to make a difference. And, and yet I think QAnon sort of threw it into relief for people like, oh, oh, wow, we can't just take these claims at face value anymore. And like, maybe police aren't always telling the truth. And certainly some other social movements helped us get to that place of like, maybe police aren't always telling the truth. In a bizarre way, I kind of, I'm, oh, thank God I found the people who understood what that was. But there's just so much going on right now. I don't know how to approach it any other way than to like build my own personal archive as I go. Well, you're doing a great job and we're really thank glad you. you're doing it. I feel like we have kept you late and we should let you and Valerie Solanas, you know, slink into your lounging. But thank you so much for like traveling this hard road with us and, and for continuing to do your excellent reporting audit in general. We're so grateful. Thank you. I'm so excited to be part of the series. I don't know if excited is the right word, but you've had some incredible people on talking about very terrible things. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues, Cynthia Newberry, Alice Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.